When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Between you and I, the English language is going to the dogs. This debate took place on the 5th of March 2014 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Well, welcome everyone to this Intelligence Squared debate. I'm really delighted uh, to be taking part in this, not least because I have such mixed feelings on the subject. I am forever tweeting pictures of misplaced apostrophes and the like. And yet, I think language is a living thing. And clearly, we are not all still talking or writing like Chaucer or whoever, whomever, whatever. And yet such was my delight when, in an episode of Doctor Who, John Sim, as the master, ordered, decimate them, destroy one in every ten. (laughs) No one gets decimate right anymore. We have to count on aliens for that. As to disinterested versus uninterested, well, I'm sure our panel will enlighten us as to their thoughts on the subject. Now, um, I just want to remind you that you will be casting your vote at the end of the evening. You should have one of these, a ticket, um, and you will tear it in two, and then you vote with either the for or against. If you're still undecided, which I find pretty hard to believe, um, but you might be, um, you put the whole uh, ticket into the ballot box. Now, I have a little question before we start. Just we're all curious, given the mix um, of Intelligence Squared audience, I wonder how many people raise your hand if English is not your first language, if you are a non... So we have a good, a generous sprinkling, 40, 50 people. So that would be very interesting to know um, what you think of our panelists and our debate. So I am going to start by introducing our first speaker, who is a BBC Radio 4 Today presenter. This is your cue to rise from your chair. (laughs) They did tell me. He is the author of Lost for Words, The Mangling and Manipulating of the English Language, and Beyond Words, How Language Reveals the Way We Live Now. And you have already welcomed John Humphreys, but do it again. 
That second bit of applause doesn't come out of my allotted time, does it? No, no, no. Ah, that's, that's all right. That's no. Right, we're starting now. I want to start with a story, um, a, a short story, about a young, very poor, unsophisticated black American kid from the Deep South who was very clever. And he won a scholarship to Harvard University. He went to Harvard on his first day there, wandering around the campus, and he saw a couple of extremely sophisticated um, Harvard uh, students standing, leaning against the wall, nonchalantly with their cashmere sweaters and scarves and all the rest of it. And he approached them and said, Hey, y'all, can you tell me where the lab is at? And they looked at him with disdain. And one of them said, Old man, at Harvard, we tend not to end sentences with prepositions. <laughs> so he looked, he looked back up at them and he said, hmm, uh, c- Can you tell me where the library's at, asshole? <laughs> now, I... I tell that story, well, partly for the cheap laugh, but also and mainly because I want to show that those of us who support this motion are not necessarily pedants. Because what that young man did was brilliant. His English was magnificent. It was forthright, direct, entirely unambiguous. It was entertaining. It did everything that is required. He was communicating magnificently. But here's the point. You cannot communicate. He also knew how to do it in other ways, of course, because he was a clever kid. You can't communicate without a basic understanding of certain rules, and we like to call it grammar. It doesn't matter what you call it. Anybody here learned a second language? Lots of you, I dare say. Did you do it without having some understanding of the grammar of that language? Of course you didn't. I left school at the age of 15, and uh, I hated school. I was hopeless at it, thick as two short planks. But I did learn a little bit about grammar, enough to enable me to pen a sort of reasonable sentence, I think. Anyway, I applied for a job at the local paper at the age of 15, got it, and it's been downhill ever since. It worked for me. Shortly after I left school, the educationists, I'd prefer to call them ideologues, um, decided that they would abolish the teaching of grammar in our schools because they said it was... Uh, in, it was, it was closing in students. It was locking them into this sort of dead man, dead white man's language structure. And there was absolutely no need for it. What we had to do was let their imaginations run free. We didn't want to constrict them with rules, which, of course, was exactly the opposite of what happens when you teach kids grammar. If you have grammar, it's a tool. It enables you to put sentences together. It enables you to communicate. Deprive them of that, they cannot communicate as well as they should. So they stopped doing it. A few years later, I was uh, writing a column for the Sunday Times and uh, got a huge response to it about this particular subject. Got a huge response. Had a letter from a mother who sent me an essay that her uh, young daughter had written. She was 10 years old. And the essay had been marked by the teacher. At the bottom of it, the teacher had said, very nice, but you could have written this a lot neater. Now, if I were a real pedant, I would have said, what? A lot neater? You're using an adjective when you should be using an adverb? Terrible English. No, what? made me just slightly upset about it, was you could have written, she had written of for have. Yeah. Indrawn breath and absolute... What chance? What chance did that poor kid have? She didn't... Her teacher didn't know the difference between of and have, for God's sake. But there's... Look, Eric has already made the point that, that we shouldn't try to preserve English in aspect. Absolutely not. I love it. Absolutely love it. I've got a 13-year-old. I've also got kids up to the age of 47, which is why I look so old. Uh, it, 
my youngest is 14, and he speaks often with his friends, nearly 14, a language that I can't understand. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. It shows that they're alive to language. They're inventing. We've all done it as kids, haven't we? I mean, now they use the word sick to mean pretty good, wonderful, whatever, whereas we might have used the word cool. Well, I mean, cool was stupid, sick is stupid, but it's alive, the language is living. And I don't care if Shakespeare has Bassanio um, split infinitives. I don't care when E.L. Doctorow gives uh, Billy Bathgate the sort of grammar that would utterly unacceptable in any respectable forum, and he doesn't observe the rules of punctuation and so on. doesn't matter. He's alive. He's speaking as Billy Bathgate on the streets of, of Brooklyn years and years and years and years ago, and it's dynamic. It's wonderful English. That's art. But what we have language for primarily is, what an obvious thing I'm about to say, is to communicate. And you do it by using the sort of phrasing the sort of sentences that make people feel at ease. When they know where you're going. They know the point you're making. You, if you're reasonably competent at it, they will be unambiguous. Now, grammar structure is one thing. Vocabulary is another. And this is one of the things that does worry me a bit. And I looked at a few of the words. We've already heard a couple of... Uh, Erica mentioned the um, disinterested. Well, it's different from uninterested, and it's a good and important word. We've lost it. Infer is different from imply. Another important distinction, we've lost it. We also, and this worries me rather more, we substitute weak words. I don't know why this is going on here. I, I suspect it's, it's for political reasons, politically correct reasons, you might even say. Uh, we substitute weak words for strong words. So, just a couple of examples. We don't have, you know, it's just, we don't have problems any longer. We have issues. <laughs> issues around things. We don't have difficulties any longer. We have challenges. <laughs> Hard-working is a phrase we can no longer use because, according to our politicians, Every family in the land, unless they're actually on the dole and begging in the gutter, is a hard-working family. It's gone. It's denied to us. And I say politicians, and this is the point. Look, this is why, one of the reasons why we need language and we need it to be clear and unambiguous. Because if we don't, it becomes meaningless when politicians employ the tricks that they do. We have, we have to be aware of the tricks that they play. Politics, democracy, demands clear unambiguous communication between us, the ruled, and them, the rulers. Orwell obviously knew a thing or two about this when he created Newspeak. He recognized that totalitarian regimes have to control what we think, and the best way to do that is to try to control the language. So they removed, for Newspeak, they removed all those words from the language that they, were, they did not want the population to use. Very effective. At least it might have been if it had worked. We don't know. Perhaps it'll be tried again. Actually, I say that. They are trying it in a way... Gordon Brown did, um, did a, a, a budget speech at a time when they were spending rather a lot of our money. They were at the height of the spending spree, and he delivered himself of a budget speech in which he used the word spending twice. He used the word investing 43 times. <laughs> now, do you think he was trying to deliver a message? Tony Blair made a magnificent speech. I was there in 2000, a party, a, a party um, conference speech, in which he delivered himself, and I wrote the figure down because I got it from my old friend Simon Hoggart, sadly deceased. 163 of his sentences contained no verb. <laughs> now, <laughs> you... You, you might say, you might say that doesn't matter very much, but actually it does, because I tell you, when you were in the hall and you were listening to it, you were thinking, great stuff, hope, 
boom, boom. Achievement, boom, boom, boom. The future, not the past. What the hell does that mean, the future, not the past? Anyway. And then when you sat down and thought about it ten minutes later, you realised it said bugger all. Which may or may not be good English. The point is, verbs cement meaning. And what the politicians want us to do is to take their meaning without them having to be explicit. So it's different saying... We want prosperity for all, and this is how we're going to deliver it, as opposed to just saying prosperity or one nation. How are you going to do it? BBC, I'd like to say the BBC is entirely faultless in this. I'd like to say that we communicate always unambiguously, always clearly. I will give you a few little examples. I don't suppose I have very much time left, but I'll give you a few little examples. I dug these out for for my first book, actually, um, of where we allow just a teeny-weeny bit of um, uh, lack of ambiguity. Let's put it, let's creep in. These are from news bulletins. For the second time in six months, a prisoner at Durham Jail has died after hanging himself. (laughs) Then again. And a... Another one? A suicide bomber has struck again in Jerusalem. We have have one minute. One One minute. minute, Sixty women have come forward to say they were assaulted by a dead gynecologist. One wonders what he might have done had he been alive. Rather, Rather more seriously, there was an appalling, atrocious assault by a gang of men on a shopping center in Kenya in Nairobi last year. You'll remember it very well. We went to great lengths to describe these men as gunmen, extreme Islamists, whatever, whatever, whatever. We didn't use the word terrorists for a number of days. Now, what those men did was they murdered children in front of their mothers, mothers in front of their children. They murdered people for the express purpose of creating terror. Now, if that is not a definition of a terrorist, I'm damned if I know what is. And my point is, if we shy away from words that we feel might cause a bit of offence, might jolt people a bit, if we, if we try to um, find euphemisms, then it's a dangerous road to go down. We're not exactly where Orwell was, but we're kind of taking those little, tiny, tiny little baby steps towards that unhealthy um, state of affairs. And that's what I want to do, and that's what Simon wants. That's what we want to do. We want... We don't care particularly about between you and I. That's just stupid, and everybody knows it's stupid. And why would you say it when you can say between you and me? Wrap it up, please. Wrap it up. What? Oh, sorry? Hey, I want extra time now because she's just interrupted me. Because I wouldn't interrupt anybody, I can tell you that. Um, uh, But look, you're actually going to hear from Mary in a minute. Um, and you're going to hear from Oliver, and you will be impressed by what they have to say. I'm telling you that. I know that because I've read Oliver in the Times. I've seen Mary on the telly, and they are wonderful at what they do. And why is that? Because they communicate with you brilliantly. They use the language perfectly. They are masters of the language. They know the rules. They know how to make it work. So, really, what I'm going to say to you is, if you approve of what they say, (laughs) you vote for us, obviously. And as as an old uh, former presenter of Radio 4 programmes used to say at the end of every one of them. Somewhat I accept pedantically. If you have been, thanks for listening.
Well done. And now I would like to welcome our first speaker against the motion, commentator at the Times who writes a weekly column ironically called The Pedant, and author of the forthcoming Accidents Will Happen, A Guide to Modern English Usage, please welcome the freestanding Oliver Cam. Thanks very much, Erica. Ladies and gentlemen, there is one thing that John and Simon and I have in common, despite our disagreements. I don't want to be personal, let alone ungracious about this, but we are not young. And this isn't an incidental detail. It is fundamental to this debate. In life, in George Eliot's magnificent construction, the middle-aged are a natural priesthood of those whom life has consecrated and disciplined to be a refuge to early stumblers. But in this field, in linguistic usage, it's not like that at all. People like us are querulous. We insist on certain essentially arbitrary designations and rules, and we get extremely cross when we see them flouted, or as some might say, flaunted. (laughs) And this isn't really a debate about language at all. It isn't. It's a debate about an almost inconceivably minute subset of disputed usages. Things such as disinterested, imply and infer, uh, the use of the apostrophe. This is, compared with the great potential of language, an astonishingly limited subset of usages, and disputed is the word. If there were no disagreement, if there were an obviously right body of rules, uh, as John implies, then there would be a need for only one style manual and we would all be taught taught from it. It isn't like that at all. Language is interesting. Language is about the way, and on this point I do agree with John, is about the way human societies communicate. Every human society has complex grammatical constructions. It has language. Language is the way that we have uh, the ability to replicate ideas. We don't need to invent everything anew every time. Language is in the phrase of uh, Stephen Pinker, the cognitive scientist, in a great book. It's an instinct, the language instinct, by which he means not that English toddlers have an instinct for English grammar and Japanese toddlers have an instinct for Japanese grammar, but every small child, every three-year-old, says Pinker, is a grammatical genius, is a master of complex grammatical constructions. I quoted this judgment in one of my columns once, and a Times reader wrote to me to say, if you think every three-year-old is a grammatical genius, well, you haven't met my grandchildren. Now they have turned into teenagers. And, of course, he was missing the point. He He was assuming that certain slang terms, such as John referred to, are evidence of linguistic debasement. But every three-year-old can say faultlessly, and you will have heard it many times, 
I want an ice cream. It's an astonishingly complex construction of pronoun, verb and noun phrase in object case. Every child learns it. Every child out in the park sees a canine, says doggy, sees two kind canines, says doggies. That child has learnt by instinct that there is a rule where a noun inflects for number by adding S. That's interesting. The sort of things that you find usage pundits talk about is not interesting. It's an incredibly narrow subset of usages which exemplify certain fallacies. Another fallacy is that we're talking about grammar. Linguists, when they talk about grammar, mean usually either syntax, how words and phrases fit together, or morphology, how words are constructed. The sort of things you read about in uh, usage pundits, columns, and style guides are not these things at all. They tend to be semantics, the meanings of words, whether disinterested means bored or whether it means impartial, or orthography, that is spelling and punctuation. The conventions of use of the apostrophe are not some inviolable rule of language. They were imported from, from French in the period of early modern English. The conventions of the use of the apostrophe so that it's with an apostrophe is an elision and not a possessive, that's purely arbitrary. It came about because it's as an elision was already taken. In uh, 18th century English, the greengrocer's apostrophe was absolutely standard. You'll find references to Handel's operas, opera apostrophe S. These are not, John, these are not rules of grammar. These are conventions of usage. Yes, we need conventions of usage, but they're nothing to do with logic. They are like um, uh, electrical points and standards for fitting them. They are just tacit conventions that we find useful. Certainly, it is important that children be taught the conventions of standard English. But the reason that grammar broadly defined, not technically defined, the reason that grammar broadly defined uh, fell into abeyance in classrooms in this country in the 1960s was not some progressive revolution. It was because the content of those lessons was largely rubbish. <laughs> These lessons were taken from 18th century grammarians, people like Robert Baker, Robert Louth, Lindley Murray, who crops up in uh, George Eliot quite a lot, um, people who believed that there was a set body of rules, or rather that there wasn't and that there ought to be, and they ought to define it. And these rules were beaten, literally beaten, into generations of school children to no good effect. I get letters every week from Times readers who I know were educated um, in this era um, who ask me if such and such a rule still exists, split infinitives or whatever. And my answer to them is always, no, it doesn't, and no, it never did. Uh, split infinitives is a 19th century, the uh, prohibition on split infinitives is a 19th century superstition. We can date it exactly. It comes from the 1830s. English doesn't even have an infinitive. It has uh, a subordinator, the word to, and an infinitival form. Split infinitives are what everyone can spot and have nothing to do with good English. Yet this is the sort of stuff that appeared again and again in so-called grammar lessons. 
And what the style pundits, the usage pundits continually confuse is stylistic preference, which we all have, with rules, with grammar, as John puts it. Not, in fact, grammar at all. Just a set of arbitrary edicts and prejudices. Yes, it's important that children learn the conventions of standard English, but every native English speaker already knows English grammar. It's absolutely absurd to say you learn a second language in such and such a way, therefore you must learn a first language in such and such a way. You already know the conventions of English grammar because of the instinct that you have to learn a set of rules. It may not be, though in the case of this audience, it almost certainly is the case that it's standard English. But it may not be with other native speakers standard English, but it is grammatical English, complex grammatical constructions. The pedants, the grammar purists, the sticklers, they are hung up on the idea that a language has certain inviolable meanings and single meanings, and you can't ever change them. In fact, no English speaker, no English speaker um, adopts a purely consistent approach that the origins of a word determine its meaning. Language doesn't work like that. Language doesn't work like that. And if you look up, as sticklers almost never do, The history of words, such as enormity, which Simon refers to in his book, when it came into the language, it did mean something of huge size, not just something um, uh, of of great wickedness. Oliver? Yes. Thank you. Just checking. The problem with the Stickler's case, I think, comes down to this. The English-speaking world has hugely expanded over the past century. There are more non-native speakers than there are native speakers. British society has changed radically over the last century, over the last generation, in my view, almost entirely for the good. We are a freer, more tolerant, more polyglot uh, nation and society. And if you look at what the sticklers insist upon, they want uh, an Arcadia They want a golden society that never existed. Um, They believe that there is one form of language that needs to be taught. They don't tolerate ambiguity, as John was very clear about, yet ambiguity is shot through. The English language is shot through with ambiguity. It is not essential to communication that we be absolutely unambiguous because English is a river. It flows through many tributaries. And the stickler's argument against is simply misguided and mistaken. It doesn't understand custom. And ladies and gentlemen, I've had enough of it. Well, this is definitely a debate that goes where no debate has gone before. Um, and uh, boldly, indeed. And um, I'm now going to introduce our third speaker, who is for the motion, journalist on the Daily Mail, an author of Strictly English, The Correct Way to Write and Why It Matters. So please welcome Simon Heffer. Thank you very much, Erica, and ladies and gentlemen. Um, in the book that Erica has just so kindly plugged, uh, its sequel's coming out in May, by the way, so please order it now. Um, I rail against many things, uh, much I know to Oliver's distaste. 
Uh, but two of the things I rail against particularly are the use of cliché and the use of hyperbole. Um, obviously, whoever framed the motion this evening didn't read the book. Um, I think the, the use of the nominative for an accusative was, was an attempt at humour, something I also warn against in the book. Um, <laughs> I want to congratulate Oliver on his speech. I, I, I agree with much more than I thought I was going to, and I was particularly charmed by his use of a subjunctive after about five minutes. Um, <laughs> Uh, in both of the books uh, that uh, I've written about grammar, uh, I have talked about the subjunctive and the importance of it uh, as one of the precision tools that we can use in our language. And I'm afraid I look at language not just from a utilitarian point of view, although that's very important, as I shall say in a moment, but uh, from an aesthetic point of view. Um, I'm the possessor of one of the most useless things in the world, a degree in English from Cambridge University. And... uh, I read Chaucer, I read Milton, and I know very well that our language has evolved. And only an idiot, and despite appearances, I hope I'm not quite in that class, would stand up here and say that our language must be frozen. Of course, words have changed their meaning, and of course, grammar has evolved since Chaucer was writing, since Milton was writing, even since Charles Dickens was writing. And we all accept that. Things change. People change. New inventions come along that require new words. None of us had heard 40 years ago of a fax machine. Uh, So, of course, language has to change. But I take this rather old-fashioned view, and I apologise for being old-fashioned, that there was a movement towards the end of the 19th century, both in terms of words and grammar, where an attempt was made to codify our language. I forbear to say uh, that people tried to set rules... Um, that's for others to interpret. But there was an attempt to codify the language. And you had from 1880 onwards, uh, actually I think before that, the, 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 the programme to produce what was originally called the New English Dictionary, assumption of the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, it's a, a, a point that words do change their meaning, that the OED uh, had supplements and then had a second edition, and I believe a third edition is now underway. And Anybody who wants to consult the OED most valuably does so by looking online because words change all the time. I have certain beefs with Oxford University Press. For example, um, John, uh, or actually, no, it was Oliver who talked about the difference between flaunt and flout. I was first aware of uh, this catachrasis um, on the Today programme. It wasn't John, of course, who did it, it was um, somebody who was being interviewed about a football match. And Uh, Not that we wanted to deal in stereotypes here, you understand. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this man said, yeah, well, of course, trouble was, uh, trouble was, Kevin, uh, you know, he was was flaunting the rules all over the place. And I I was incredibly shocked by this, and and (laughs) I'm easily shocked before breakfast, believe me. I rushed to the uh, manuscript of uh, Strictly English, available from all good booksellers, but quite cheap on Amazon, and I entered this uh, particular mistake into, uh, into the book. I then went to the Oxford English Dictionary to make sure that I was correctly using both flaunt and flout, because even Homer nods occasionally, and I saw, when I looked up flaunt, it said uh, occasionally used for flout. It, it, it didn't say... It's wrong. Perhaps that's not the OED's job. But it said it was there. And by putting it there and not saying it was wrong, I felt this misuse of the English language was being endorsed. After all, these are two words. 
that are one syllable, one is six letters, one is five, it's not too difficult, even I would have thought, for the meanest of intellects to work out that one means to parade something and the other means to show disregard for something. And I worry why it is that we fetishize in this country the abuse of our language. We are a nation that is almost constantly in a cultural cringe towards many of our European neighbours. We, we think that the French have better-looking women than we have, that the Germans have better composers than we have. Uh, we, the Italians have a better cuisine than we have. We look at foreign countries and we envy them and we feel that they do things so much better than we do. But in fact, the one thing that we don't emulate in foreign countries is their, is their almost militaristic obsession with teaching their languages properly. I used to have a French conversation class every week. Um, I, when I worked at the Daily Telegraph, I was attempting to cover French politics, and uh, my French was pretty rudimentary, and a very sweet woman came in from King's College London every Tuesday evening and uh, talked to me in French, and I struggled and tried to talk back to her. And she would become almost vicious. She was the nicest woman imaginable. She would become <laughs> almost vicious with me if I did not uh, guard le subjonctif. She said, you should use a subjunctive there. She said, a child of 11 in a French school would use a subjunctive there, you clot. And I felt <laughs> utterly humiliated. And I, I presume because of Oliver's own precision with the subjunctive, he's had the same teacher at some stage. <laughs> But we don't think badly of the French. For, we think badly of the French for many reasons, but not, but, <laughs> but not for that reason, not that they are so peculiar about their language. I wouldn't want to go so far as to have an academy as the French, which I think is really silly, and is one of the things that we can be you know, poked fun at about the French. But we should take an aesthetic pride in using the precision tool of our language properly. Now, I wanted to come on to utility, because utilitarianism, I'm afraid, does rear its ugly head. I used to recruit graduate trainees for the Daily Telegraph, and I worked there. And we used to get about 1,000 applicants uh, every year for five or six places on the graduate trainee scheme. And uh, the people in uh, HR, I believe that's a cliche, but you know what I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the, the people in HR, some of whom could actually read and write, were asked <laughs> to look at these 1,000 applications and to reject any that included either on the application form or in the covering letter, a spelling mistake or a grammatical error. Uh, my grounds for that were quite simple. I wasn't uh, discriminating against anybody. I took the view that we already had enough semi-literates on the paper as it was. And <laughs> I, I didn't think it was a good idea to hire any more. Now, <laughs> Oliver has talked about Times readers writing to him. I used to have, ending up on my desk the quite vitriolic letters of Telegraph readers for whom an, an outbreak of war was, was little compared with not the splitting of an infinitive but a, a hanging clause um, or, or, or a, a, a plural where there should have been a singular and vice versa. And I would whittle down, or my colleagues would whittle down this slew of 1,100, 1,200 applicants some year to around 200. And these were all... We only advertise at what is known as the best universities... Uh, and at the best universities, they were supplying us with these people. When it came to the shortlisting, there was a boy who was a very, very bright boy indeed. He had a double first from Cambridge, which is more than I ever achieved. 
uh, and so I, I instinctively deferred to him and respected him. And we made him come back with the other 12 people, other 11 people on the shortlist to do a spelling test. Uh, they were supplied with the 45 hardest words to spell in the English language. And the other 11 candidates got between 35 and 45, which I thought was commendable. You know, we, we, we can't all be perfect. Um, this boy, with his double first, got, I think, 18 or 19. And I was rather shocked. Uh, I presumed he had used a spell check for his application. Uh, he's obviously had some native cunning. Uh, as one got into Cambridge in the first place. And I was distressed. And I was on a sabbatical at the time at my college at Cambridge. And the next day I said to the very brilliant Don who taught English, is it possible to get a double first in English at this supposedly great university without an ability to spell? And she said, well, of course it is. Now, that has changed in the 30 years since I was an undergraduate because I'm pretty certain that I would have got a third-class degree or a special or something really grim like that if I had been unable to spell. I wasn't just being tested on my knowledge of Jane Austen or my ability to um, uh, work out what Shakespeare's metaphors meant. I think I was being tested on an ability to communicate. And it was... It was manifest to me that the debauchery of our education system in the last 30 years has stopped people from communicating. I, when I brought out Strictly English, I was attacked by various professional linguists who said, huh, you know, don't make up rules like that. You know, whatever, whatever anybody says goes, it's all fine. It's a free-for-all. And I agree with John. You know, young people are, um, are fully entitled to speak English as they wish and to communicate among themselves uh, in whatever way they see possible. But when the moment comes when you actually apply for a job or apply for a place at a good university and you don't get that place at the university or you don't get that job because you can't write English properly, it's all very well for um, a, a professor um, sitting, I don't mean Mary in this case, because she wouldn't dream of being so ignorant, but I, I, don't, um, I don't think it's very good for a professor um, who has made his way to the top um, to sit and say it's all very well for other people to speak English badly when he's got a job and he's got a security in his life and young people are failing because many of us do still speak English. People buy books like mine and like Oliver's and they buy them because they're interested in maintaining that precision tool and they don't like people who don't respect the language. All I'm asking for is to respect the language. I'm sure it isn't really going to the dogs, but it's, there is a climate where we fetishise the bad use of English. It's not big and it's not clever, and I urge you to... Yes, I urge you to support the motion. Thank you. <laughs> And now, please welcome our final speaker against the motion, Professor of Classics at Cambridge University, television broadcaster and author of the widely read blog, A Don's Life, in which she comments on worlds both ancient and modern, Professor Mary Beard. Uh, well, I'm at a disadvantage here because I'm the only amateur on the panel. Um, my ally, Oliver, writes a column about little knotty problems of language and the blokes at the other end have both written books about this. Uh, you know, they're the kind of guys who go home at night, we have to imagine, and enjoy discussing with their partners whether disinterested is different from uninterested. <laughs> 
They get up in the morning and, unless they're John, they listen to the Today programme and they get, they get cross about flouting, flaunting, flaunting the rules without realising the poor guy was making a joke, wasn't he? Simon just missed the joke. Anyway, um, I'm here as the classicist uh, amateur and I suppose you would think that possibly... Um, a woman who was really brought up on um, Latin grammar from the age of about 11 would perhaps be on their side of the debate, but I'm not. And I feel actually Intelligence Squared brings out the sort of dissident in me because last time I was here, I found myself a lefty defending the right of the public schools to exist. And here I am saying that, the English language is not going to the dogs. Why I'm saying that is because um, I mean, I, I've got a foot in two camps, really, because I think I'm a reformed pedant. You know, they're pedants, but I'm the kind of recovering pedant, recovering alcoholic. Um, and I'm reformed in this sense. And as I said, um, I was brought up on grammar. I was brought up more on Latin grammar uh, than English grammar. Um, and I learned and devoured all the rules and exceptions to particular forms of Latin usage that we were very expertly, if rather ruthlessly, taught. I mean, I don't know how many people in the room um, actually suffered some of this, but I remember learning things like you use in, and that's the Latin for in, you use in with the ablative case unless you're talking about a town or a small island, in which case you use the locative case. And I remember thinking, how small does the island have to be (laughs) before you know whether to use the locative or not? But anyway, I got off on this, I have to say, uh, and that's really because I think I was a bit of a control freak in my teens and my 20s. And Latin was a great language whose practice and principles uh, you could lay out and you could control or obey. Uh, And you could, you know, you could write it down and tabulate it. Uh, And I still think there's something fun about that. But... It was only in my 30s, when I'd been in a university job for some time, that I discovered what is the horrible but in some ways truly liberating truth. That is to say, Latin grammar that I'd spent such a long time learning, believing it to be a a deeply Roman form, was actually something that had been invented by Germans in the 19th century. (laughs) who had looked at all the Latin there was they could find, and they tried to make the rules. They didn't completely actually succeed in making the rules, and that's why there were all those exceptions, because the exceptions were the things that the Germans couldn't actually make fit their otherwise brilliant scheme. And I saw that as soon as I looked at anything that was actually written by a real Roman... Uh, and I mean not something that was rewritten for them by a 19th century German, they were breaking the rules all the time. And that Latin was different across the centuries, and those exceptions were the rules. 
They weren't the exceptions. And, and just to go to John's point about poor old Mr. Blair not using any, not using enough verbs in his speeches, there was no end of Roman orators. Cicero was always leaving out the verbs. We used to say, the verb here is understood. That means there wasn't a verb in the sentence. You can have sentences without verbs in Latin. It's wonderful. Anyway, it wasn't a a long way from there. It wasn't a great distance from that realisation about the fatuity of Latin grammar to uh, the position I'm now in, where I find myself embracing and cherishing the kind of changes and innovations, that's what they are, we see uh, in modern linguistic usage. And I find myself thinking that if English were to be going to the dogs which I don't believe it to be doing, the people responsible for it going to the dogs are those guys, not me and Oliver, right? The ones who are kind of seem to me, whatever their disavowal about how they like kids saying, I'm good and all the rest, actually seem to be bent on preserving distinctions in the language that no longer particularly are useful to us. They also, the other thing they do late at night, I think, they can never actually agree about the rules. So they have, you know, even though they want to uphold the rules, they don't know what they are because they'll go on for ages about, should you start a sentence with the word and, you know, and they disagree about this. So I guess I have come to relish change and to relish difference and subversion and linguistic revelry. I'm pleased that we don't much have an accusative case in the English language now. You know, I'm very glad that we don't go around talking about thou and thee. I find things like Finnegan's Wake are absolutely enriching. And I'm hugely delighted that words change their meaning, that we have new distinctions that we want to draw. And I think that's fun and interesting, and it has a historical depth to it. I remember the first time that I read Jane Austen, just to give you one example the other way around. I can't remember which one it was, but Mr. Somebody was in the drawing room with Miss Somebody, and it said, they were making love in front of the fire. And I thought, blimey! (laughs) Making love in front... And eventually, after they'd done this several times, you know, in public, um, I realised that it just meant flirt, Right? Now, nobody's saying here that there are no rules to language and that anybody like me is throwing them away. There's no social activity in the world that doesn't have rules. I mean, none of you have come this evening in your bathing costumes. You know, we have rules of costume, of demeanour and deportment and language. But actually, what rules enable us to do is to break them, to avow different ones to debate what they should be, and actually to transcend the damn things. And it seems to me that the most authoritative and independent and enriching language users are those who know the rules. You know, you don't start a job application, hi, mate, you know. That wouldn't be, you know, in Simon's terms, not a great idea. But they have a sufficient grip that they can uh, overturn subvert them and make the language do new things because the bottom line is this language is ours it's not you know it doesn't own us we own it and we want to use it to do new jobs so um 
what I suppose I wondered is, where does it leave these two blokes on the other side? Now, at a certain point, I felt that John was, should have been on our side anyway. I didn't think he really belonged with Simon. Um, <laughs> um, you know, another way I look at them and I think, mm, they're a wonderful example of what I'm trying not to say, but I'm going to, uh, the traditional English grumpy old man, you know, who'd been around forever saying, oh, it's not the same. Now, there were Roman, there were Roman grumpy old men too, you know, who said people aren't using in with the abative properly, I guess. Um, they've been around for centuries. Um, but I think in that way, they're rather valuable to us. I mean, I like to have them there as a as an example of of to keep us on our toes, but not necessarily to follow. They're a useful reminder of what you might do with the language if you were just that little bit well-meaning but misguided. That's where I want to keep them. Uh, I think the key is to love them, cherish them, not to vote for them, let me say. That would be a very great mistake. Don't believe all that they say. When Heffer tells me in his book that collide comes from the Latin collidere, and you can only ever use it of two moving objects, therefore you can't collide into a tree, I tell you, he's just wrong, right? (laughs) But... Uh, yeah, Kalidari means bruise in Latin. Um, anyway, <laughs> so long as we, they, they, they kind of keep us on our toes, I think that's fine. But don't let them spoil our fun. One and minute. Don't, I'm going to finish even prompter than the blokes, <laughs> of course. Um, do not let you feel that you've somehow been a moral failure, you know, if you've done some naughty linguistic bit of uh, you or I up there. That what we're going to do is keep language constantly on its toes, doing different things, drawing new distinctions. I don't care if I talk about issues or problems. I'm wanting to refresh what we're talking about, not leave it in the same blasted dark hole. Thank you very much. Your voting no. So the next stage of our debate will involve all of you. But before we throw things open to the floor, I will reveal the vote. Everybody voted as they came in. Uh, And so before the debate, we had for the motion a pretty resounding 53%, which doesn't entirely surprise me, I have to say. And against the motion... A respectable 27%, but with a crucial swing. 20% don't know. So I don't want any untorn ballots at the end of this when we take um, the votes again. Make a decision. So now we have um, microphones, I think, going around. And what I'm going to do, so we get the most um, kind of good conversation, is I'm going to collect two or three questions, and please keep your questions brief, and you can direct them um, to all of the panelists, to a panel panelist in particular. Um, let's have one at the front right here. And wait till you have the microphone to speak, please. Um, can you hear me? 
Yeah, I used to teach English to foreigners in London. I was preparing them for important exams and possibly jobs using English. They used to say sometimes, but my landlady says you was. My landlady says I ain't got none. What, according to um, the panel, should I have replied? Okay, so that's our one. Let's take another question. Uh, Oliver Cam spoke with such conviction that just for a moment it occurred to me he might conceivably be right. But then I came to my senses. (laughs) (laughs) Surely the point is this. When a man, say, is speaking to somebody, he wants the person to whom he is speaking to understand what he means. If he then uses disinterested and uninterested at random, it depends on the context, but the listener may very well not understand what he means. Now, to use Mary Beard's expression, I don't think that's fun and interesting. I think it's just plain silly. <laughs> let's, have, let's have one more before we speak. Um, I am tempted to vote in favour of the motion, uh, which is that English has gone to the dogs, uh, not least because of something that I heard on the Today programme this morning, which made me choke on my cornflakes, which was when Evan Davis, of all people, um, said that... Uh, people who were relying on the savings interest for their income were screwed, uh, which was a a rather unusual word to hear at that time in the morning on Radio 4. So um, the language, if I'm going to make a decision in this debate, I would like to know from the panellists something to do with that little sign on the screen, which is a hashtag. What do the panellists think has been the effect of Twitter on the English language? Okay, so now we have, I would say, our three, do we listen to our landladies? Um, Is uh, being a stickler about these things really just being silly? And what is Twitter doing to the English language? Are you looking at me? Why not? All right, but but I first have to make a very, very, very important point in relation to what um, Mary said. She accused me of being uh, an English grumpy old man. (laughs) Mary... I'm Welsh. <laughs> the, re- the rest of the description I accept with pride. Uh, lady with the landlady. But that's the point, isn't it? You're making such an important point there. If she continues, if your students had continued to use that sort of usage, they would not... Well, A, they wouldn't have passed any exams in the times, that's for sure, but they wouldn't have been able to communicate as clearly as they otherwise might have done. And that's it. That's what it's all about. And all the stuff that Mary's given... She knows it's nonsense. You could see the way she was delivering it. She knows how to... And whereas Oliver was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I didn't understand half what he said, but that's not the point. And he is... He is very clever. And by God, did he speak beautiful English. So he's also learned as well. I mean, that's, that's the point. Twitter, I don't do it. Um, I don't have any objection to it at all. Uh, does it enrich the language? Probably not. But it's a fad, isn't it? It'll come and go. Interestingly, um, my 14-year-old, nearly 14-year-old, doesn't tweet, um, and neither does any of his friends. They all use... BBM and different sorts of messaging services. So I wonder whether it's going to continue. I don't know. Perhaps it will. Um, and um, the, well, exactly, exactly. What, what an important distinction that, that there is. The, yeah, of course we can lose words. Of course we can. 
And nobody is going to suddenly wake up on Thursday morning and say, my God, that, that word we, we had doesn't exist any longer, so I can't possibly use it again. It, it doesn't work like that. But gradually, there is an accretion of these things. And the more, wor- look, the more words we lose, the poorer our language becomes. And what I want to do, that is a bit silly, of course it is, but what I want to do is to preserve and protect the wonderful language that we have and all this stuff about Latin. I mean, of course, Latin is all rubbish. But the, the, we, we have a beautiful, expressive language, beautiful in art, beautiful in every conceivable sense when it's used properly, and we know when it's being used properly, don't we? That's what it comes down to. And all I want to do is preserve it and protect it. Change it, of course, all the time, endlessly. It's dynamic. But let's hold on. Let's not... Cliché coming up. Sorry, Simon. Let's not chuck out the baby with the bathwater. Sorry. I like Oliver would like to add, I think. Yes. Let me deal with your point first, madam. You should say to the students that English has many dialects and many registers. You use different forms of English in different contexts. And if the foreign students whom you're talking to are applying for a job, for example, they need to master the register of standard English as it is written and as it is spoken. But that isn't, in inverted commas, proper English, which John has said several times now, using English properly. That's a particular form of English. It's standard English. And I referred earlier to the um, abolition, not as a conscious decision, but as a falling into disuse of instruction in grammar in schools around the 1960s. And it was a good thing because the content of those lessons was rubbish. But it was a bad thing that nothing replaced them until much more recently. And English language is taught well in schools now. Every August you get scares about declining standards of literacy. It's not true. There is a persistent problem with people, particularly in the labour market, who can't use language fluently. But that's... Nothing to do with declining standards of literacy. And you, would, you should say to the, to, to, to the young people that you talk to who learn English as a foreign language, um, master the language in different registers um, because you can use it in different ways in different contexts. And I'll use the word situation, in different situations. Second question referring to the distinction between disinterested and uninterested. You answered your own question, sir, when you said you can tell from the context That's the thing that the sticklers never look at. How do I know when Simon Heffer uses the word wicked that he doesn't mean it as a term of approbation? I know... (laughs) (laughs) Well wicked. Well Well, wicked. I know from the context. And, yes, the use of disinterested to mean bored is doubtless originally a misconception, but it exists. And we use the word interest in dual or indeed multiple senses. But we don't, we don't confuse it because we know from the context. And that's what the sticklers don't grasp. On the question of Twitter, um, Twitter uh, and texting and other technological innovations... They're not debasing the language. Relax. People said exactly the same thing. They said exactly the same thing about the invention of the telegraph. Uh, Twitter is a way of communicating that I find fresh and vital and sometimes um, a distinct improvement on the sort of prose that you might have found 
let's say, in a Times leading article a century ago? We'll have some more questions and then. Let's Can I give you a little poem? Is that allowed? Very short. Mary, Mary had a mobile, she tweeted day and night, but when it came to her exam, she'd forgotten how to write. <laughs> I think Mary would like to add something. I, I'm, I must add something because yes. I've been, you know, slightly traduced to the other end, and I'm, I'm going to say I am. This is using a bit of Ciceronian um, rhetoric. I am not going to ask Mr. Humphreys to um, comment on whether the Welsh language is going to the dogs, but I'm sure there's an interesting comparandum there. Um, I think. Can I just say about this disinterested and uninterested? See that. The question really is not whether we can put which words we're going to put in the zoo or put the preservation order on or make kind of endangered species that will be, you know, specially mated in, um, in order to make sure they've got some, you know, some suitable offspring. The question is, what are the distinctions we want to draw? What do we want to... What, what are the distinctions and the differences that we want our language to help us point up? Now, if the case were, that all we were doing was making cruder and cruder distinctions, then I might say, well, look, there, there might be a problem here with the language. But I don't think, I mean, as all of us saying, it's partly about context, it's partly about we have different ways of representing the distinction that we once used to represent as disinterested and uninterested. It isn't that we've given up on that. Uh, we just do it differently. Thank, you know, in some ways that's... That's fine by me. I'm interested in the distinction and the arguments, not the actual words that go with them. That's where, with Twitter, I think, I think Oliver's right about the language. I think the problem with Twitter is what it's doing to arguments, and that might be that might be something different. But I don't think it's ruining the English language. Very good. And um, we have a question from the top. Yes. Speaking as someone who's married to an American. And who's come this yes. evening with a second American? Uh, I'd like to ask the panelists: Do you agree that it's mostly the fault of the Yanks? <laughs> okay, well, we're going to really hang on to that question because it obviously must be addressed. Um, I'd like to challenge something Oliver said just now about teaching in schools and about rising um, the, the, the safety of standards. I'm, I've been an A-level and an IB examiner. And a few years ago, I was invited to write some material for Heinemann's, for A-level material. And I submitted stuff, and I was told it was too difficult. And I said, well, this is what I, the standard I marked to with A-levels and IB. Are you telling me that A-level standards in this country are going down? And she said, yes. Okay. And one more over here. I'd like to ask John Humphrey if he could share with us the, his understanding of the word impartial. <laughs> and if it happens to be the same as the one we all read in the dictionary, could he explain to us how the left-leading language that is increasingly coming out of the BBC is, is consistent with its charter obligation... <laughs> To be impartial. In other words, is it the BBC or the language going to the dogs? Well, we'll see where we get. Let's take one more question at the top. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask a question to the opposition, who I feel are maybe a little too idealistic. Um, I'm an English teacher in an inner-city school, and I can assure you that if you came into some of our lessons with our lower-ability students, you would think that the English language was going to the dogs. Um, and I suppose my point is that 
we need to be it's it becomes very difficult when people high profile people in public life who speak very eloquently and very beautifully and very clearly as you two both did in your speeches then say that it actually doesn't matter how you use language because i think that's that's too confusing for our students we need to um emphasize that there is a, a right and a, and a correct way to speak and write and once you've mastered that then you can use language any way you like but until you have there is there is a correct way and we all need to be clear on that so, so we have the fault of the yanks A-level standards going down. Again, another important question about schools, how we teach in schools, and then perhaps we can come back to impartiality. So, Simon, you haven't... Well, I I wouldn't dream of uh, uh, trespassing on John's territory, but he will give you you a a, a definition of what disinterested means in terms of the BBC when he speaks. Um, These other questions seem to melt into each other. I don't think it's the fault of the Yanks at all. America has a, is a distinct country, it's a distinct culture, it has a distinct language, which occasionally bears a resemblance to ours. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I wouldn't presume to uh, judge uh, how Americans speak and write it. I think it's the fault of the education system. There was a distressing story in the paper today, I think I read it in Oliver's paper, so it must be true. Um, <laughs> it said that people who have English as a second language have a much higher chance of getting a job straight from school or university uh, than people uh, who have English as a first language. And it singled out um, the, the usual whipping boys, the white working class in our country, who uh, are apparently neglected by the education system. And these people have been terribly betrayed. I remember John in uh, August, about 10 years ago, on the Today programme, interviewing two examiners from the GCSE board um, to, and asking them what it took to get a pass in English and maths. I'm sure John remembers this interview. And the, two exam- the examiner in English uh, admitted, after, under heavy questioning from John, in a very disinterested way, that... <laughs> Uh, the, the, with, without being able to spell or even write properly, you could pass uh, English language GCSE. I went into a really good comprehensive school uh, three years ago when my book was published and met some of the sixth formers there. The headmaster, who uh, was a very fine man, who told me he wrote books for teachers who teach English in schools, assured me that spelling mistakes and grammatical errors were corrected right across the curriculum in his school uh, because he knew how dangerous it was to let his pupils out at the age of 16 or 18 uh, without a proper command of the English language. When I asked the sixth form uh, what their experience was of their teachers correcting uh, these things in biology or history or geography, they said none of them did. And uh, the headmaster was there and put his head in his hands and I don't know who got beaten up later, whether it was him or the the teachers or 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 the pupils. I think there are terrible problems in our school. We seem to be very reluctant to make people learn a language rigorously, as I said, in the way that the French or the Germans do. Um, We need to be realistic and shape our young people for the world in which they're going to live, not the world in which we would like them to live. And unfortunately, we, we live in a world where the minute an Englishman or Englishwoman opens their mouths... There was a grammatical error for you. Um, well, they are judged by what they say and how they've said it. 
And uh, I wish it wasn't like that, but it is, and it will continue to be like that without any help from people like me or John Humphreys. And so we had better start saying to people, if you wish to be treated as an educated person, you have to become an educated person in terms of using the language. And that is something that schools, I think, are graphically failing our young people in at the moment. Oliver? The question, is it the fault of the Yanks, as you put it, sir? No, of course not. Um, There is a widespread supposition or a prejudice that you hear in language debates in this country, Uh, and I'll single out one particular culprit, Prince Charles. Um, There's a widespread supposition that the American dialect is a debased form of English. Uh, It isn't. Both the dialect I speak and the dialect that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that my American equivalents would speak, let's say a columnist on the New York Times would speak, um, they are not, neither is pure English. They are descendants of a common ancestor. And in many respects, the American dialect is closer to that common ancestor than my own dialect. Um, for example, if you listen to Erica, she will doubtless pronounce the R in Labour Party, whereas I won't. Um, In that respect, the American dialect is closer to history than my own. They're just different ways of expressing English. They're not a corruption. um, They're not a a debasement. They're just dialects. And there's nothing correct or incorrect about a dialect. It's just something we pick up. On the question of um, education, I take very seriously indeed the stubborn problem, as I said, that some people in schools and in the labour market don't have basic literary skills. But it's not a new problem. Um, and I simply, uh, I simply don't recognise in your depiction of the argument that Mary and I put anything that we actually said. We didn't say it doesn't matter how you speak. We said, on the contrary, it matters very much that you be fluent or your students be fluent in the conventions of standard English, because that is how you're judged. But what I take strong issue with is the idea that this is proper English or correct English as opposed to, let's say, the dialect that Erica speaks. Um, These are not rules of grammar. They are conventions of orthography and conventions of certain semantic distinctions. Um, They are important to learn, but I totally disagree with the idea that there is an inviolable, correct way of putting it and that you're somehow, and the language that the sticklers use is quite apocalyptic, that you're somehow barbarous or illiterate if you don't know them, if you're unfamiliar with them, if you have to be taught them. That's the distinction between rules of grammar that are instinctive and conventions of usage that are taught. I I feel I I should say that obviously I, I do not think this is where I will show my colours in this debate, um, that it's all the fault of the Yanks and that American English is, debates, I, is debased. I have to say, I'm married to an Englishman. There is some confusion in our house about what we mean by pants. 
but <laughs> we manage. We manage. I also think we have to just watch Dr. Heffer a bit with his admiration of the French education system. You know, somehow we've been led to believe that the French have got it all right, they teach grammar, and he's about to say the taxi drivers quote Voltaire because that's what usually comes next. Taxi Rumble. drivers, taxi drivers know one quotation from Voltaire, which they use every time. Now, actually, at uh, you know, the underbelly of the French education system is no better at doing what Simon thinks thinks wrongly he wants uh, than ours is. Probably that's fine, but I don't think we ought to think you know that for, on, on one issue only you can go across the channel and find they've got it right, Dr. Heffer, because I don't think they have. Let's have. Um, uh, do I, yes, he, he did yes. attack the BBC after. Oh, all, yes, he did. He? So, he did. I mean, I don't have to speak. I can no, just, go. I do, and incidentally, I do congratulate um, Oliver on, on, on that wonderful construction of straw men. If ever I want a straw man built in my garden to scare away the crows, I'm going to call on you because we didn't say anything. Anyway, whatever. Let, <laughs> let, 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 others, let others judge that. Um, Impartiality, I think the questioner knows precisely what it is. Of course he knows exactly what it is. Um, it's, what he's getting at is, is this uh, notion that he is festering away in his mind that um, the BBC is partial. Uh, first of all, the BBC is not monolithic, so therefore it is not partial. There are those people who work for it who take one view. There are those people who work for it who take another view. Um, but you, asked, you, you made it rather more personal than that, and you asked me about my impartiality. All I can tell you, sir, is that I've been doing this job on the Today programme for 27 years, and I have been accused by all of them <laughs> of being unfair to all of them. And I hope that continues, because, I mean, I know, it's, 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 it's a rather crude and clumsy way of measuring impartiality, isn't it? But, uh, but I reckon, you know, if... if um, one moment you're being uh, attacked by the Labour Party, um, by the Conservative Party, rather, for poisoning the well of democratic debate, which is what a certain Jonathan Aitken, who subsequently went to jail, but we'll put that to one side, <laughs> said, said, said about me, and, uh, and, then, and, then, and, and praised by the Labour Party simultaneously for, for saving democracy on behalf of a grateful nation. And then when the Labour Party came to power, all of a sudden you find that actually, as they said in the left of the BBC, something must be done about the John Humphreys problem. I mean, you know, that's the way... It's, it's politics, for God's sake, and you should be old enough and ugly enough to know that. And I would... As, as for whether it's the fault of the BBC or not, and uh, obviously you think it is the fault of the BBC, whatever the fault happens to be, all I would say, I'll be entirely serious here... I put aside what the Today programme does. Some people like it, some don't. Um, the BBC is, I believe, immensely important to this country. I struggle to imagine this country without the BBC for all its many, many, many faults. I think it's a great civilising institution, and I hope it survives. Yeah. I've changed my first language about four, four times. I'm getting back to English now and trying to understand what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> um, two words that come to my mind are that of context and communication, because I've worked in many foreign countries, and one has to simplify one's language. So if you say disinterested or uninterested to a Kenyan, it's basically the word interested with something vaguely negative in front of it, and that's as far as you get. 
and I think that's important. If I'm talking to my landlady and I use very correct English, she'll probably think I'm posh and I won't be communicating anything much to her anyway. I think there is that point about somebody up there was saying about learning the tools of the trade before you become a Picasso of language. But I do think we are in a situation where partly because of internationalization, I'm at Warwick University where at least half the students are foreign. Um, internationalization is one thing. Language becoming abstract is another. And I think young people in particular using simplified forms of communication like Twitter does pose a risk because it means there are less and less people, less and less environments which are able to use English in a creative way and flexible, changing, adaptive way. Okay, next comment. Right next to you, I think. A lot has been... Uh, the BBC is referred to quite a lot. What's curious in this whole conversation is that class and English haven't been raised once. And when one thinks of the BBC, one of the most important historical things they did was develop a thing of called received and correct pronunciation, spelling, whatever. And when I was growing up, I grew up in uh, Yorkshire. And, you know, looking at the English language is going to the dog's I wouldn't find anybody in the street who wouldn't say the English language is going to dogs. <laughs> there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be the... And I was told, Michael, if you want to get on in life, I don't think you should do it like that. <laughs> you know? And so the relationship of language, which my grandparents were speaking broad Yorkshire, and advancement in British society was codified by language. And it was important to realise that until the 1950s, working-class voices weren't allowed on the BBC. Mm-hmm that actors had to play the part of working-class voices, that people like in movies, Dickie Attenborough and John Mills had to go down market to adopt language so they could be the engineer in the bottom of a... Sorry, I'm just going to wrap you up. So it's well, I just want to know, I'd like actually a comment, really, from the panel, because interestingly, the whole of this has been spoken in language which I speak, which is a kind of, obviously, a middle-class English language which I was yeah. taught. What do they feel is the role of class in the whole organisation of British language, which, after all, for many, many years, wasn't written down and was spoken regionally? Yeah. Do we have anyone? There's someone at the back. You have to, I think, come to the microphone here, I think. Excuse Is this on? Right, OK. Yeah. Can I ask a question? So, just at the top here? Yep. Bit of a walk of shame, that. Um, <laughs> this one's for Simon, really. Um, he's because I feel I should defend professional linguists because I've, I've read a couple of the reviews of his book, which he said, uh, so they said that it was laissez faire and you should just have, there are no rules at all. That wasn't at all what they were saying. But, uh, certainly, Jeff Pullum, who was one of the professional linguists, and David Crystal, what they were saying was there are very, very clear rules of English and you got them completely wrong. Um, so, I was just going to suppose the question is did you read the reviews at all? Or did you just decide that anyone who thinks that, anyone who thinks that we should be describing the rules of language is a, is a laissez-faire liberal do-gooder? Okay, so we have three. We have the issue of inter- internationalism, a very interesting issue of class, which indeed we haven't discussed, and who gets to discuss and make the rules. Simon, do you want to start? Uh, I did read the reviews, and I thought they were wrong. Uh, <laughs> since you asked. 
And I think it's all very well for people like David Crystal and the other chap whose name I can't even remember uh, to, to go on talking about, and they did talk in those reviews about uh, being unduly censorious. Let them try and get a job without speaking English properly. Put themselves in the place of a 16 or 18 year old uh, young person who is patronised. This goes back to the class question who's patronised by an employer uh, because he or she turns up and doesn't speak English in the way that the employer would like. The employer might say, well, I'd be embarrassed for that person to meet my customers or to write letters to them. We've all had letters from institutions, from banks, that are badly written and, and uh, are full of errors, and we throw them away because we don't take them seriously, at least I do. And I think if you want to be taken seriously, if you want to have, um, to use a gutted jargon word, a good interface with the public, you should at least respect the public by speaking English properly. Um, class is important. This is, what I, this is what I meant by saying um, we shouldn't be looking for a society that we wish existed. We have to accept a society that does exist. And I regret that. You know, in 1940, Wilfred Pickles became the first person to speak with a regional accent uh, on the BBC. He was put on the BBC because it was believed that his thick Yorkshire accent would be incomprehensible to Germans who were listening in. <laughs> We have fortunately moved on from, uh, from, from such a time and I, I can't imagine anybody's going to criticise anyone these days for speaking English with a certain accent. Uh, however, it's the grammatical forms within what they are saying and the correct use of words will remain important and, in my view, so it should. Oliver? Um, Simon, you dismiss the critical reviews, the gentleman whose name you affect not to remember is Jeff Pullum, who's Professor of Linguistics at Edinburgh. Um, and you say in your book, which I have read, that you have respect for the work of descriptive linguists. And you can't say that, Simon, because you disagree fundamentally with their premise that English is not a set of edicts. There's not a set body of rules out there. Um, the lunatics are in charge of the asylum. Language is set, the rules are set by general usage. In the words of um, Horace, the Roman poet, um, uh, Norma Loquendi, the, the custom of speaking. William Sapphire, the New York Times columnist, wrote a book called In Love with Norma Loquendi, uh, which he didn't really follow. He was more of a stickler than that. But I am in love with Norma Loquendi, and I'm faithful to Norma Loquendi, and I urge you to be faithful to Norma Loquendi because language is set not by an external body of rules, but by the custom of usage. Certainly one can take a view on particular constructions. We heard from John earlier about the question of terrorist, on which I actually agree with him, um, or the feminist objection to the term chairman or the use of he, which Simon did as a, as a generic pronoun. These are valid objections, but I don't see how one can plausibly object to particular grammatical constructions that are, have historical and literary precedent and are in general usage as wrong. On the question of class, that's a very important point. In the earliest gram, uh, uh, grammar sticklers, Robert Baker in the 1760s, specifically criticised the, the, the parlance of what he called low people, which were servants and actors. And Fowler, a much, much better writer than almost all his imitators, H.W. Um, Fowler, um, uh, took examples deliberately from our profession, journalists, to illustrate solecisms and errors as he saw them. He was a moraliser too. They're all wrong. They're all wrong because they understate, they underestimate the importance of general usage in the construction of linguistic rules. 
Can I just say, by the way, that it is possible to respect somebody without agreeing with them, which is exactly what I how I feel about you. <laughs> Mary? I was interested in, you know, uh, Simon's view about whether you give people a job or not, because I, for quite different reasons, I, I've spent a few hours this last week looking at YouTube clips from the BBC in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And you know, what we've been saying is absolutely right. They talk in a way that you would not now associate... I mean, you know, it makes Prince Charles look plebeian. Yeah. Is the, like, and you think, I'd never give any of them a job. I mean, they sound like a complete load of barking toffs. Right? Presumably, some of this was stuff, the Tonight programme in the 1960s, that I watched. And presumably, I didn't sit there and think, God, what a load of barking toffs. I, I must have thought this was normal at that point. So the change is extremely quick. No, absolutely right. Uh, my one of my many huge mistakes um, during my um, fifty-one years at the BBC was that um, about I don't know twenty-five years ago, no more than that, thirty years ago, my then editor, I was reading the television news, um, took me aside one day and said, um, "Can you take a chap called John, put a chap called John Cole through his paces in the studio to see if he's any good in front of a television camera because he's the." political editor of The Observer, and he wants to become the BBC's political editor. So I did. And uh, we spent the afternoon, me and John, in the studio, John and I, in the studio. And, um, and, and I went back to my editor, and I said, no way. I mean, I can't understand a word he says. He's Northern Irish accent. So, and mercifully, happily, they ignored me and gave John the job, and he became one of our greatest and best-loved political editors, and what a colossal error. The fact, yeah, of course, he had a very thick, broad Northern Ireland accent. In fact, I once, very quickly, I'll tell this very quickly, we, uh, we were at a, uh, a party conference together once, and I had done a pre recorded interview with him for the nine o'clock news, which we had to edit down because it was too long. And he and I and the editor of the program sat there in the edit suite. Um, playing the thing back to decide which, what we could cut out of it. And John said, and forgive me, I can't do the accent, but I'll try. He said, could you play it again? And I did, and we played it again. He listened very carefully, constantly. He said, could you play it again? And we did, three times, and the clock was ticking away. It was coming to nine o'clock. We were due on air in a few minutes. I said, John, what's the matter? And he said, just that bit there. I can't understand what I was saying. <laughs> it, it, it did not justify my original condemnation of him, but there we are. But I tell you, I had to read it. Mary is so right. When I joined, I came from, I come from a place called Splot in Cardiff, where, the, where the, you have to have a kind of a coat hanger inserted in your mouth to speak proper. And, and I grew up talking like that, you know what I mean, a kid. That was how I talked. And then I joined the BBC, and they said, we can't have you talking like that, can we? So what they did was they sent me to America, and I learned to talk properly there. <laughs> Well, I think that that comment actually uh, reveals the, the gamut of how the English language is made. I think at this point, um, I'm afraid it's time, you're going to have to vote again. Now, remember, you have your cards for and against. I urge you not to remain undecided. And as you do that, we will have our closing speeches in reverse order. So vote quietly, please. And welcome. We're just going to do it from our places. Okay, so Mary will you've, start. Um, just got time. If you're hesitating to vote no, um, 
Mr Humphreys has just said he agreed with me. I'm sure he means on most things, and I think we're really pretty close. So a no vote would go down well, if you're uh, wondering what to do. I think the reason for giving a no vote has to be, first, you know, nobody, certainly not either Oliver or myself, is that right, Uh, has... And ever suggested that language rules are for throwing away. You know, there is no human social interaction that is not bound by rules. Language goes with that. They are important. What, what we're in a sense wanting you to embrace is ideas of change that some of us slightly more middle-aged guys occasionally feel anxious about. But we've talked about the use of language and vocabulary in particular. I just wanted to leave you with two examples of where in my lifetime I have seen vocabulary change in ways that might be decried but are really important indicators of changing social values. One would be how you refer to people of colour blacks or negroes I was brought up never to say black that was extremely rude you had to say negro imagine going out and doing that and the other of course is in relation to the gay movement and whether you can say homosexual queer gay I was likewise taught never ever to say queer and now I discover there is a whole intellectual discipline of queer studies. Now, those are not mad, random changes done by people on their iPhones. Those are instances of language changing to help us say new things. Very good. So, rest my case. Simon. John and I were told before we came in here that... Um, most of you would have voted by the time Mary finished, and so I wasn't entirely sure what use I or he or Neil Oliver can be, and I'm very much inclined to sit here for the next couple of minutes and say how much I wish I could take part in the Milton versus Shakespeare debate um, <laughs> in favour, of course, of, of, of Milton, who is our greatest poet. I, I wanted to say two things, really. Uh, when, you're, when you're voting, those two or three of you who haven't yet voted, think about... <laughs> our young people, and think about giving them the best possible chance to survive in a world that's incredibly unpleasant and very difficult, and uh, one that I would, not, I would not want to be a young person again now. It's a much more brutal and competitive life, leaving school, leaving university and getting into the real world than it ever was when we were younger. Thank you, baby boomers, for sorting that one out. And it's important to equip our young people with proper skills so that they can be taken seriously and respected. I also think that it's important to bear in mind the aesthetics of beautifully spoken and written English. If you went to a concert, a symphony concert, uh, to hear um, Schubert's Great C Major, and uh, it was played in, uh, in B-flat minor, you would wonder what on earth was going on. And I, I, I think there is a certain parallel there. My final appeal, because I think you now all have voted... Uh, is to anyone here who has any influence over the school curriculum. I think Oliver's right, actually. I'll say this now, you've voted. I think he's right to say that grammar lessons, as I understand them, uh, were fatuous and ill-informed and based on people who were um, prejudiced and stupid and who made very bad decisions like Bishop Lauf about the language. I think, in fact, it was Bishop Lauf who first had the prejudice in the 1760s against splitting the infinitive. Uh, But what I would like to see is a compulsory 
teaching from a very early age of a foreign language. Because I think there's no better way of making people, young people, children, learn grammar and learn what the meaning of words is and how words can be used precisely than by making them learn as early as possible a foreign language. And if we want to have language as a badge of civilization and also as a means of acquiring the trappings of civilization, teaching foreign languages to children as early as possible, I think, is the best way of doing it. Simon, I hate to sound pedantic, but I'm, I'm certain that Bishop Bluff had no uh, prohibition against the split infinitive. I would date that bogus, fatuous, pointless rule that still people write to uh, about, uh, they write to the Times about. I would date that from the 1830s. Milton, I admire too, and he referred to the serpent as the subtlest beast of all the field. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how he spelt subtlest? He spelt it S-U-T-T-L-E-S-T. Everybody did then. It was some busybody pedant later on who decided that subtle needed to have some reference to the original Latin, so inserted a B. These things are purely accidental. There's not an obviously right way of spelling the word. There are conventions of orthography. There are conventions of usage. That's what Mary and I are arguing. Language is absolutely fascinating, and language has rules. Language has rules, and there is an instinct for learning a set of rules, which is then applied. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about some impossibly narrow set of prejudices. Recall how often the word disinterested has been raised in this debate and wonder, wonder why people get so upset about it. The very fact that it's mentioned so often shows that it isn't endangered. And if there's one language in the world that isn't at risk of perishing, it is the language that we are speaking. Gentlemen, get a grip. (laughs) And above all, do not disdain, as Simon actually does in his writings, as he explicitly does, do not disdain the evidence of usage. Usage, general usage, not anyone's usage, not anyone's solecism, not a misprint in the Times or the Daily Mail or the Telegraph. But general usage is the only evidence we have for the content of the English language, which Mary and I relish and cherish quite as much as our opponents. It's been a a really bizarre debate, this, hasn't it? Because uh, I knew that I'd be able to pray my opponents, our opponents, in aid, because I knew that they would be perfectly articulate and use wonderful language, which, of course, they've done. But they've also agreed with us on almost every single point. I've been making copious notes, as is my hat, and I can't find anything, really, with which I disagree. It's quite extraordinary. When I um, wrote my first book and, and the first reviews appeared on uh, Amazon, I was accused in, it might have even been the very first one, of being a pedant. Actually, I wasn't accused of being a pedant. I was accused of being a pendant, which uh, <laughs> I, I thought 
<laughs> to this day, I'm not sure whether it was deliberate or not. And, and, of course, he was exactly right. He, it was a he, was exactly right, because I do swing from side to side. And, 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 of, and of, of course they're right. Of course language changes, and thank God for that, as both Simon and I have made very, very clear over and over again during the course of the evening. Of course language changes. But, look, one of my uh, former editors on the day program is a chap called Rod Little. And, and uh, Rod is, I think you could safely say, a controversialist, or whatever the right word is. You, you've read it, no doubt. And um, if you think something, he will find a way of disagreeing with you. And he does it brilliantly and cleverly. And when the language debate began a while back, again, it, it props up from time to time, doesn't it? And it, it happened, I don't know, 10 years ago it might have been. And Rod, in a column in The Times, not The Sunday Times, then, in a column in The Times, set out to prove that... that the, of course, grammar was completely upon his punctuation was ridiculous. Who needed it? And he wrote a column, a 1,200-word column for the Times, without any punctuation at all, to prove that we would indeed be able to understand what he was saying. And it's true. I did understand it, but it took me the best part of Saturday morning to do so because <laughs> I had to read it over and over and over again to work out quite what he meant. And that's the point. I want English... And forgive me, Oliver, but I'm going to use the word unambiguous again. I want English to be capable of being spoken and written unambiguously, if that is what we want. We might sometimes seek ambiguity, but mostly we don't. I want it to be spoken and written clearly, and we have the wherewithal to do that. I don't want us to lose that wherewithal, that's all. And there are some disturbing tremors, perhaps, that suggest people are losing interest, not becoming disinterested, are becoming uninterested in this topic. That's why it's wonderful that we're doing it tonight and to see so many of you here is absolutely heartwarming. And knowing with absolute certainty that you're going to support the position that Simon and I have taken. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. a few more minutes while we're just waiting anxiously for our um, can we take a couple more questions while we wait yeah I think we have over on this side yeah um, has the BBC ever done a survey as to whether the public would prefer to receive received English as it is spoken rather than what I I can't understand half of what is said now. I mean, you listen to poor Evan Davis. I mean, can perhaps, perhaps Oliver could go and give him some lessons because they don't complete their sentences. They speak too fast. Uh, it's, uh, so many people say this. I'm not alone. So more I, I, I've given up trying to listen to him at 7.30 in the morning when you're still half asleep. It's not possible. And we do get a lot of complaints about that, it's true. Over here at the front? But I think on your question, can I just answer oh. that? It's a very quick point. Um, we, do, we have done surveys about whether they prefer us, the audience would prefer us to go back to received pronunciation, and the answer is absolutely no. They, they like the um, uh, regional accents that we have. And anyway, it would be preposterous, wouldn't it, to, to, to try to impose RP on all of us. All of us. I think at the back first and then at the front. So, uh, John and Simon, is there... Any example of egregious abuse of the English language that you're forced to admit you rather are glad exists? <laughs> and uh, Oliver and Mary, are there any abuses of the English language that you really wish just had never been given life? And then we have, we have one more question before we... Yeah, right here, at the front. Right here. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry I didn't realise um, with the microphone. 
language is power, and to label people as speaking incorrectly does disempower them to some degree. Um, I wonder to what extent you thought that labeling people as speaking incorrectly was an attempt by the establishment to continue to exclude people from legitimacy in some respect, because um, uh, yeah, cause just because you know speaking correctly is seen as um, sort of is valid by the establishment. Okay, so validation by the establishment um, in imposing speaking correctly. Um, we've addressed, I think, bringing back uh, RP. Um, go ahead. Yep. Um, your question, Madam, gives me a perfect opportunity for a gratuitous attack on uh, one of Simon's heroes. Um, in his book, which I've read um, minutely, Simon refers to one of his saints, he uses the word saints in the question of style, as Enoch Powell. Um, Enoch Powell uh, was a sophist and a crank on every issue. Leave aside, Simon says, um, whatever the occasional controversies of his politics, he was a splendid stylist, which is some euphemism. Uh, and I admire Simon for coining it. I toties rather than euphemism. Uh, 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 the, the, the problem with Enoch Powell intellectually was that he wasn't a stylist. He was a furious pedant. He was a sophist. Um, and I do think there is a great deal in what you say about um, delegitimizing forms of speech and reverting to a certain type of reasoning, never mind language, that has nothing to do with the sort of values that we should want to convey uh, now. Can I just um, answer the question about the abuses of language? Because I, I think actually... Um, it's what again. It's going back to my Twitter point. It's it's more the abuse of argument or the use of cliche, which I despise, and I think that Me doesn't too. separate either of us. You know, so you know, I think I would be very pleased if uh, the Today program before ministers went on it said, "I'm afraid we don't use the phrase hardworking families on this program any longer." <laughs> well, you try um, that, you know, yeah. and or, or had it, you know, had an Erica you know, little bell so that every time they said hardworking <laughs> oh, families, you know, but but that I think isn't about language so much as it's about uh, the 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 the, actual, the flaccidity of the arguments that these people are trying to make using language, and that's different. Are there any things that you are forced to admit abuses of language? Well, you're on really... my own part. Yes, well, you were, I'm asking, I, I'm I, reminding you of the question. How long have we got? I mean, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> that, you would, that you would actually reluctantly admire. That I reluctantly admire? Yes, or use? Abuses you. of the English language. Yes, well, as I, you I, see it. It, it, it is. It's what kids do. I like their abuses. Is that the right word for what they do to the English language? If it is, I love it. I enjoy it. I find it entertaining. So long sick? as I know that they are also going to be able, when they need to, to speak a different kind of English, the kind of English that will enable them to do all those things that Simon was talking about. But, but of course, I, we, we had somebody on the other day uh, who... Um, a regional, a very, very, very strong regional accent. Some people struggled to hear it, uh, to understand what she was saying. Some people complained afterwards. But she, she delivered it with such style. She happened to be 94. That's immaterial. She delivered it with such style and panache and verve and enjoyment that we all enjoyed it. Just listen. The music of the language it was wonderful, even though we couldn't quite understand what she was saying. <laughs> I'll settle for that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the results 
are in. So a little reminder that before the debate, there were 53% of you for the motion that the English language is going to the dogs. 27 were against, and there was a don't know, a possible swing, of 20%. After the debate, 57% are for, so even more strongly, but and against the motion, 41%. (laughs) So the motion have won, but against have definitely won the swing. So well done to everyone. (laughs) What was the vote, Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.